Welcome to McGuffin Men. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. You can check out our website to keep up on our podcasts. Uh, MacGuffinMen.com is the address. We most recently talked about Batman Returns. For that, were You Can Count on Me, No Time to Die, Paths of Glory, and Pablo Lorraine's No. All right, James. Uh, here we are back in the Pablo Lorraine uh, fan club. Uh, yes. This is our movie today is Spencer and uh, the latest in my favorite genre of movie, Pablo Lorraine movies about women who are sad. Um, <laughs> we just, as I mentioned, we discussed no recently. We talked about Jackie five years ago, I think is when it came out. And this is a uh, Spencer is a sister piece to the latter. Um, Quoting Kristen Stewart talking about the script, Stephen Knight's script lives in the gray area of Diana's life. It lives in between the moments you would think would be depicted in a movie. It's never the meal. It's the dirty dishes. It's the wrapping paper between the presents being opened. It's always her sort of getting dressed or undressing, (laughs) Um, which I thought was a pretty good description of the movie. And whereas Jackie exists as a very pointed effort, um, like the movie is a very pointed effort from its subject to control how they're seen by the public. This movie sort of shows uh, Princess Diana dealing with her own lack of control over her life. And um, Pablo Lorraine said in an interview, if Jackie is a movie about memory and grief, I think Spencer is about me- motherhood and identity. Um I certainly focus more on identity than motherhood, given my lack of experience in the world of motherhood. But um yeah, I think that that is the interesting, it's the main jumping off point because it's so easy to compare Jackie and Spencer. Um, there are a lot of similarities and I think a lot of differences. I think Jackie is very much uh, a woman who has been through the worst thing she could imagine um, and then sort of trying to exert some control over how that will be depicted going forward in future. You know, the main crux of that movie is her trying to um, sway a reporter or, you know, have a reporter construct a story in a way that makes, projects her in the way that she wants to be projected. Um, And that is not the case with with, uh, Spencer. Spencer is very much a movie about a woman spinning out of control who feels like she, like, can't grab, can't grab the guardrail, you know? Like, she's just spinning nonstop and, and nothing can get her out of it, even though she has what, you know, some would view as a quote unquote ideal life, you know? Yeah, and I, I think there's still parts of some of those elements you're talking about from Jackie. You know, she wants to be <clears throat> the idea of how she is seen and uh, the press. It, they, they exist in there, but it's definitely not as central to to the Diana that we get in this story, at least. Yeah, for sure. And I will mention that um, Emma is a movie that Pablo Lorre made in 2019. That is sort of a, a middle point. Um, it's not about a famous woman. Um, it's a but it's more, you can really see the the changes uh, in Lorraine's style from Jackie to Spencer if you watch Emma in the middle. I, I loved Emma. It's a movie that I would do a podcast on in a second if I had any idea how to talk about that movie. Um, it is just so abstract and wonderful. Um, and he also did uh, Lysi's Story earlier this year, which is a, a Stephen King adaptation that's a bit of a ghost story. And you can certainly see... Um, the role that played in in Lorraine's evolution to get to Spencer as well, because this movie Spencer really is a kind of is a bit of a ghost story element to it too, right? Like it's sort of, it is hard to grab hold of. Um, There's much less dialogue than there is in something like Jackie where um, 
we're sort of projecting how we feel about this character and her actions and the world that she is, uh, I think it's fair to say trapped in, you know, like, um, and, but it all does feel weird because she is one of the most famous people who's existed in our lifetimes too. Right. Um, I'm talking about princess Diana, you know, Kristen Stewart is still on that list just a little further down, you know, but, um, I don't know. It is, it is a weird movie, a difficult movie to talk about because it is a bit abstract, but, um, it's all, it, that abstraction with somebody so famous is just always, always interesting when it works, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm sure when we talked about Jackie, the movie, we talked about it being very personal. And I remember us saying like, just the amount of screen that is covered with Natalie Portman's Mm -hmm. face for extended periods of time. Like it is such a personal movie. It's so close, but this just goes even further. You're instead of being, you know, looking at the face, you're kind of behind the face. You are, um, that's that's a movie. Uh, I mean, Jack, Jackie was a movie about a, a, a woman. Um, this is about a woman's perspective. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, it, we it's so subjective. Where there are things that we aren't sure happen. We see hallucinations or visions or dreams. You know, we get inside um, the character a lot more. So as much of as much as Jackie was about an individual, this is you know that but to the nth degree you know we're we're inside at this point so um just to see that as getting more and more zoomed in on a study of one character i think is really interesting and um yeah just uh, as you said you can see the progression of the things that 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 interest him and that he is just so uh seems so set on getting you their subjective experience at mm-hmm. at the cost of you know you don't learn a lot in this movie it seems to be for people who already know the story about diana like mm-hmm. this is not a place to get objective information but that was um i imagine pretty far down his list of goals when making a movie like this as as odd as it is yeah for sure i certainly learned things about princess diana uh, by reading about the movie you know and um as somebody who's a bit of a you know i try to know as little about the royal family as i can you know that's just one of my (laughs) goals in life um for various reasons but you know as somebody who um you know was a child in the 1990s like you're aware of princess diana's death and how big of a deal she she was as a human being while she was alive right and um and that so you're just sort of aware of her and i think that the the one thing that this movie and movies like sort of taking on these these figures in sort of an abstract way where you sort of um like you said you're trying to give give the viewer a subjective experience from their perspective um the one thing you definitely have to do is come off as empathetic, especially somebody like Diana, whose life ended so tragically, like in such a such a horrible way, um, and some in in a way that we all pretty much agree could have been avoidable, you know, like um, just by the paparazzi not being out of their fucking minds, um, and also prescription pills and all these things. But um, but yeah, it is this this movie. I think is very empathetic with. Um, like you said, the, her perspective and, um, it gets you, puts you as close to in her head as, as 
as it can. The camera is literally inches away from her head uh, so many times throughout this movie. And yeah. I think that was part of the idea is to get get that perspective. Um, but it does come from a place of empathy and it wants you to feel for this woman. And, and I think it does. And talking to uh, what you were saying again about um, trying to give the, the story from her perspective, I think that as somebody who didn't know a lot about the history of the royal family, aside from like the broad strokes, um, I think it 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 really helps watching this movie that you don't know anything because there were times in this movie where I was just like, oh, none of this is real. There were times when I was thinking, oh, all of this is real and this is very fact based, and you know, it's part of just going into a movie blind as you you give yourself over to it. And and this is a movie that doesn't want to give you a lot of the details um, because. I think it assumes half the audience already knows them and half the audience doesn't care and is just sort of there for the experience. And I think it, somehow it really balances that line and that um, as you read about the movie after having seen it and not knowing a lot about the royal family, it's interesting the way that real things are implemented. Um, and it's interesting how they are not elaborated on, you know? And I think that um, I was reading an interview with Stephen Knight and he said something along the lines of... Um, because like as soon as I saw people being weighed, you know, as they're entering the Sandringham <laughs> Palace or whatever it's called, uh, estate, um, as soon as you see that, you're like, that is based in fact. Like that is so weird, it has to be real, yeah. <laughs> and it absolutely was. And Stephen Knight said about like discovering that was um, something that was very important because it's sort of just you know, he's having a lot of conversations with some of these people who would have done these jobs, and he says a lot of the things that are in the movie that seem weird are based in fact. And I think that, you know, we've talked about that specifically a number of times with Paul Thomas Anderson. And, and if we ever do a podcast on licorice pizza, we will a number of times, but like it, just finding weird things based in fact can, even if the viewer doesn't know it's based in fact, there's, there's some sort of communication that happens between the movie and, and I don't know, your, your common sense that um, sort of elevates the movie and brings you deeper into the world. Even if you don't, you don't know what's real, what's fake, you know? Yeah, and one one example of not really... It's not so much knowing what's real, what's fake, but this combination of... Um, yeah, the objective and the subjective is when it's that first meal where she's there not the not the sandwiches yes but when 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 they've sat down and it's you know it's the one where she rips her um the pearl necklace off and it falls in her soup that Mm -hmm. one um when it's this very unsettling music i'll say (laughs) from johnny greenwood yeah (laughs) that's the first the first time in the movie when the greenwood gets dialed up to 11 yeah exactly um but it's this, you know, dissonant violin that you've heard him do before. It's um, they're, they're just playing uh, combinations of notes that are just biologically unpleasant to the human mm-hmm. ear. <laughs> like it's, um, it's just sort of a musical fact that this is makes you uneasy. Uh, but it's you know this kind of extremely nicely set table and everyone's dressed well and abiding by the etiquette, the ex- extremely complicated etiquette. Um, but then we see the violin players there, and that's something that I really liked. And they're strumming along, and there's no way, obviously, like in in real life and history, that the music that they'd be playing would be anything like we're hearing. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such a such a nice touch of um, giving that really unsettled feeling to this situation. That you know, as we said, it's some people would think that's an ideal life. It's just it's so lavish and extravagant and expensive mm-hmm. and i'm sure the food is good um 
but I, I that was just one touch where the the what was on screen matched up with what was being you know with, with the soundtrack in one way, but in a sense it was the exact opposite. It would be it would be such pleasant. Um, you know, traditional music in that situation. What we have is this very modern, you know, intentionally awful sounding music on classical instruments instead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that sort of ties into a combination of the things that we've been discussing in that, that scene, you know, I didn't, I didn't know Diana had an eating disorder. Right. And, um, in real life or yeah, in real life. Okay. Yeah. And so the, um, but that, that, sort of horror of it all um, escalates and it just sort of add, there's an element of fact in it and there's an, uh, an element of fictionalizing it in it. And I think something that this movie does uh, throughout with um, eating is that I think that whenever Diana eats with like at a sit down meal, she can't, she can't eat, right? Like she can't consume while she's being consumed by others because in those meals, we're seeing people just staring at her the whole time and just sort of like keeping their eyes on her. And we only actually see her like consume food in that late at night, um, uh, fridge session where, um, major Gregory is his name. Um, sort of comes down to check on her, but he's sort of just, he's not really there to, he's there to watch her, but he, he treats her with more empathy than is, than happens at a table. And that's in that sequence, right? He's very orderly as a human being, but he does sort of view her as a person. And I think that, um, she doesn't feel like she's just there for, you know, like she's just being stared at in that scene. She feels like she's been treating, treated like a human. And I think that's, that's part of the way that the movie, um, sort of adds, adds elements of real history and, um, sort of plays it up to fit its own story too you know yeah um this there's just so much food and so much um like weighted meaning behind the food yeah. and the kitchens and the preparations and as they eat i just did i didn't see that as something that was going to play this is such a prominent part but I, I thought it was kind of one of my favorite things about this whole movie actually I, mm-hmm. I um I I knew about her eating disorder and she was she was public about her bulimia eventually mm-hmm. not something that was just sort of guessed about um but yeah that I thought that was something that was done in a really compelling way and you know the the bulimia scenes you know the ones of her in the washroom are super unsettling yeah really disturbing for all the right reasons um and yeah i mean even just just from the intro you know when they they're bringing in what look like caches of weapons yeah like extremely valuable high grade well-protected weapons um and it's the food yeah and it's the 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 ingredients for the meals presumably that we see prepared throughout this christmas holiday and well, and you're seeing a security check even before that, you know, like the it's a literal military operation to get these things in there and make sure that it, the room is acceptable for them to be delivered. You know? Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I, I the, the first time watching it through the, you know, they, they do that part of it. And then we get um, the title card and we get away from the food for a little bit after that, but never for very long in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought that was, you know, kind of just a fun maybe not jokes the right word but it was just about how lavishly these people live that they are you know something as basic as food um yeah is is treated with such care and such uh you know with military precision and uh you know the, with the stakes just 
being that high for food delivery, you know, is kind of a funny thing. Um, and especially for someone like her who did a, a lot of charity work, um, you know, you, you, my mind just went to the other things that those people and that money could be doing if I'll say they had their priorities. Yes. Different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but to dip diplomatically. Yeah. You can um, have a good Christmas dinner for 50 bucks. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I kind of thought that was a good little, you know, an interesting joke or point. Um, but it was just something that this movie ran with. And I thought, I think there are some things this movie does a little ham-fisted or a little overdone, I'll say. Yep. Some of the metaphors, I think it hammered a little bit too hard for me. Okay. Um, but that one I really liked. And this sort of militarization of food for someone who had an eating disorder like that. Someone who, um, yeah, the combination of her being constantly scrutinized everywhere she went uh, to be watched and to have so much of her life having to be on a schedule and that going into the realm of, of time of, of food and yeah. dining and everything. Um, I would imagine someone with an eating disorder wants sort of as little attention paid to food in general yeah. as you know what I mean? And especially their, their consumption of it. And this just has to be her nightmare of, of something running with military precision about what you eat and how you eat and when you eat. Uh, it's just sort of this ongoing nightmare. It's something that, she just had to deal with it, not even three times a day, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> eat more and there, there's so many courses and it's just so strictly regimented, um, regimented about what she would be consuming and that, you know, just one of the facets of living under the mic microscope the way she was, but one that it seems would have been harder for her than, you know, me or you or, you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, yeah. She just had that, um, that element of, of her life be a lot more difficult than even other people in that same situation. So I, that was kind of one of my big takeaways. That that's something I, I liked being done um, the way that I, the way that it was and just the, the, the military speeches from the chefs and stuff yeah. and, and uh, you know, all this, all the comparisons to this kitchen staff functioning like an army, like a military unit um, I thought was well done and something I just didn't see coming to that degree and that, that I really enjoyed. For sure. And so um, one quick, quick point about that sort of element that you're talking about. I love how when the chef walks in and they, you know, as the, as the military, the soldiers and everything are exiting after having done the delivery and the chef and his staff are walking in right past them. They don't address each other at all, which is hilarious. Um, the uh, Sean Harris, I believe his name's Darren. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, is walking in the lead and you know the way down to the kitchen the lower or where they're preparing the food there's ramps on two sides and stairs in the middle and only the chef takes the stairs the the helpers have to take the uh the side that don't have don't have grip for their feet and i just thought that was that was like that had to have been um some sort of rule or something like that where it's only right. only the chef gets to use the stairs you know um so He's the, the Darren is the first person we see talk to Diana like a human being in this movie, and it happens pretty early on. Um, even even calls her Diana. Yeah, exactly, and then corrects himself. You know, and what what do you make of their relationship? Because they, she seems to actually like him, um, yeah. and he definitely wants to please her, uh, like with the food, and it not even it it. I know it's his job, but it also seems like something he legitimately cares about doing because not just because he's being paid, but because it is some, a point of pride for him. You know, he does, 
we see him stand over the, those soups and call service or whatever we call that, uh, that chefs do before they go out, um, before the food goes out. And, uh, you know, he does seem to take a lot of pride in his work, but there's, I, I don't know, there, there was just some sort of bizarre, um, I couldn't wrap my head around their relationship because it seems like they're borderline friendly, but he is also so regimented in and a part of the system that that she is really feeling trapped in in this movie. Yeah, I, I I just think that his I what I took away is that I think he is genuinely a nice person, mm-hmm. um, and I think that you know Diana wasn't that much of an outsider. You know, it's not like she grew up wildly poor. You know, you see how close she lived. Yeah, exactly. It's part of nobility. Um, but I think she, and this might be kind of romanticized a bit too, but I think that she kind of just had that outsider vibe <laughs> and, um, you know, was doing things that other royals wouldn't do and yeah. other people in her position wouldn't do. That is definitely an accurate read, for sure. Yeah. And so I think, um, I think he may have just seen her as someone who's sort of out of place and is a nice person and is not... Um, you know, even if she was raised with wealth, she probably was not. I mean, not, no, nothing could prepare you for the level of scrutiny that she was in during her lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think the the famous saying about her is that she was the most photographed person on the planet yeah. for, in her life, you know, so mm-hmm. which is uh, a type of scrutiny nobody is, can be prepared for. Yeah. 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 So I think he's just someone who is a genuinely nice person and kind of just senses that she is um, that he is there that she's suffering um i think he's probably also extremely passionate about food uh and kind of can't you know to be the royal head chef i don't think you can be anything but sort of type a and very kind of yeah. regimented it's just work somewhere else you know <laughs> uh but i i yeah th- that was sort of my take on it is just that he saw her as someone who was a bit of a fish out of water and someone who was struggling and had um you know, her, her mental health wouldn't have been, I think, where she wanted it to be at that point mm-hmm. is like is I think the understanding they're supposed to leave you with. And his, you know, when you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know, this he wants her to eat food. You know, yeah. this kind of the tool that he has is to make something so good or something that reminds her of her happier childhood or um, he just has a limited set of utilities to make her life better. And even the conversations they're having, I bet he's stepping very far out of line, but can't resist um, yeah. a, 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 an opportunity to make someone who's so visibly sad feel a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I feel like if she ends up down in the lower quarters and asks him a direct question when they're talking about pheasants, I feel like it is his. It becomes his job to entertain her in some capacity, right? Yes. You know? yes. Um, but but yeah, and I think that's something that it, uh, another thing that's interesting about his character to me is that um, you know the popular depiction of chefs in movies and television series and all these things is uh, Gordon Ramsay screaming at people, you know, and um, that is absolutely not what this chef is. And I know there are reasons for that. You know, he talks about why they have to be quiet at all times, you know, but. It does sort of also seem like um, a genuine aspect of his personality, and I think sort of there's something about that that um, I don't know. I just found I found him fascinating, and maybe part of the reason is um, with someone like Kristen Stewart playing Princess Diana 
Kristen Stewart has been in my life since 2003 in some capacity, whenever Panic Room comes out, right? And yeah. Sean Harris is the villain from two Mission Impossible movies to me, you know, like <laughs> that. that's it. And so um, there's just a lot less baggage when, when he shows up. And I think he was sort of a, uh, well, and it's Kristen Stewart playing one of the most famous people who's ever lived too, right? So that that brings a lot of uh, additional baggage, whereas he's just sort of this, uh, he's allowed to be a mystery. And I think that's something that um, is really key to this movie is the the way that other characters that she interacts with, specifically uh, Darren and Maggie and Major Gregory, the way that they are able to be um, movie characters without us bringing any baggage to them, right? Um, yeah. From the outside. And I think that, I think that's that sort of element of mystery was um, with those three characters specifically was really interesting and and really carried my interest in the movie. And I know that Diana straight up asks my, Maggie late in the movie, "Are you real?" You know, um, and there was definitely a point in that move in the movie where I didn't think she was real. You know, and um, and then you sort of start to piece it together, and she had she has to have communicated with a couple of these other characters and all of that, so she can't entirely be um inside of diana's head but uh i don't know i just think those those people um and the way that their interactions change in public and in private i think that's most true of major gregory but i think it's um it's really interesting yeah i sense less warmth between major gregory and diana than you seem to so what i see is my read on it is absolutely his number one thing is his job um and what he is supposed to do for the queen. You know, he's brought in specifically by the queen because, um, you know, he vocalizes this because um, they're getting more and more worried about Diana and the press looking at her, right? Yeah. But so I guess what I'm saying about him um, in those two times when he's sort of just keeping an eye on her and in this, again, this very sort of like he's a ghost way when she's walking down to that, that fridge at, at midnight, he's just standing there under the stairs in a full suit, you know? Yeah. Big, um, big The Shining vibes from that guy and <laughs> other parts of this movie. But yes, definitely. Him at, him at that moment in the fridge or whatever is by far the most prominent one. Yes. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, and that just like, it doesn't make sense because he's not working a 24-hour shift, you know? Like, there has to be relief at some point, yeah. you know, there's probably another major Gregory, you know, um, who, who comes in and does the night shift. Right. But, but I think when he does talk to her, he talks to her with respect, always with the idea of he wants her to be okay, but also keep order. Right. And I think that's even more clear in the pheasant conversation when, uh, later on, when they're on the, those steps together and he's sort of sharing, um, his story about, uh, being a war, somebody getting shot in front of him. He never found out what happened to that wild horse. Um, and him talking about how he take, took the oath for the crown, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think that what I project onto him is sort of a, a bit of how the queen looks at Diana, which is, again, she wants things to stay in order. But I do think that my my read of this movie is that this movie thinks the queen liked Diana and respected Diana. And I think because the only time we really see the queen speak as a human being is when she says, um, when Diana says, I liked your dress and, um, her, the queen's response is it wasn't the one my dresser wanted me to wear. And I think that sort of, um, given that that is an action that princess Diana had very recently faced criticism from the dressers for, you know, and I think that's meant to, 
to link a little bit of um, at least this movie's depiction of the queen and this movie's depiction of Diana together in that the queen sees Diana um, as sort of somebody who she aligns with in some capacity values wise. Um, And Major Gregory is there purely to um, fulfill the queen's wishes, you know? Okay. Yeah. That's sort of, that's, so it, it, you are right. It is a, I'm taking the, the long way to get to, to point B from point A, you know, but that is my read from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it, yeah, you pointed to some bits of dialogue that bear that out for sure. I, just his association with the military and the few times he brings it up and the story he tells. Um, yeah, if you, um, I, if he, or as a conduit of the queen, yeah. um, has some warmth towards Diana, I don't think Diana feels it in this movie. Uh, like no, I mean, they have about the horse, and she says, I hope your friend's horse died. <laughs> like, you stayed wild, I don't care, and I never wanted anyone to die for me. Um, I just see him, especially because of his history in the military, as this, uh, this stand in for the military as a whole, but because he is in this position where you know you dress differently and you act differently than you would on a battlefield, uh, he. He, he has all the right British mannerisms and he knows all the etiquette and, um, you know, is very stately and proper. But I think that is the way he needs to act and the way he needs to dress to bring all those things about, you know, the crown and whatever. And that, that mm-hmm. the importance that they would have the British military into this sort of more domestic space. But I never get the sense that he... Um, is sympathetic to her or doing anything that, you know, a performance review wouldn't flag. Okay. Um, Would flag, sorry. Yeah. So I, so I guess, I guess the, the thing that I'm sort of seeing with them is like, so, and, you know, bring it back to Darren, who's doing a, a different job, you know, um, major Gregory is job is specifically to watch and keep people in line. Whereas, uh, Darren's is to feed them. Right. And I feel like, um, and this is true of Maggie to an extent and the, the dressers as well, like the people inside this, this estate who are serving the, the Royals, like I think this movie does sort of depict them as good people doing what they feel like they should. Right. Um, serving, serving their, like serving others in this case. But I think the, the thing that, um, I think a lot of them just don't realize is that, or don't necessarily grasp is that it's all in service of this weird tradition that is destroying Diana and has presumably destroyed others. Right. Like major Gregory, again, he, he says he, the reason he does what he does is because he took an oath to the crown. That's not a human, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a concept, you know, and Darren is sort of working for the same thing, right? Like he wants to, this individual in front of him, Diana, he wants to um, make her happy and, and give her food that she likes and all these things, but he's doing it in a way that purely ser- essentially serves the crown, right? It ser- sticks with this tradition. It sticks with this, this place where Prince Albert decreed people would be measured in 1847. Mm-hmm. So people are still measured in 1991, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think all of, I think this movie does humanize basically every character, um, including Charles. I think, I think, in a very, very small aspect when he says to his son right before the pheasant shooting, um, just do as best you can. You know, he sort of had a bit of a change of heart. He doesn't like, 
he's angry when in, in the first uh, training sort of sequence. But yeah. on the actual day of, he's he's sort of had a bit of a change of heart, and he realizes like, yeah, I'm a dad. I just need to encourage him to do his best. Um, but I think it the idea of this movie is that the place that they're in or the thing that they serve that is not a human thing, but it's just tradition. I think that's the thing that sort of, um, I mean, Diana is the one feeling all of the weight and nobody else even really observes that it's a weird thing that they're all observing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, let's just say the wire because I think that's good shorthand, but the institutions are broken even when they're made of good people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, exactly. And I think that, the person who comes closest to vocalizing um, the the sentiments that Diana is feeling is Maggie, who and that's why Maggie gets sent away midway through this movie, you know, yeah. um, because she's too human towards Diana. You know, she's she's treating her in a way that Diana is excited to see her, you know, which I think is true of three people in this movie and two of them are her children, you know. Um, yeah, well, and I think with the institution thing it's um it's what happens when you put i'll say 50 people in a box in the middle of Mm -hmm. you know a field Mm -hmm. it's still it's this the panopticon of you know the press is watching them the royal family's watching each other the staff's watching the royal family but also tattling on the other staff um it's just sometimes it's they want something to talk about. It's just like workplace gossip in any other place. But sometimes it's, uh, it's if it affects you know these grander institutions and these grander traditions, it's it's held with more weight. And um, yeah, just that idea of everybody watching everybody, everyone can hear everyone, even the kitchen. Um, there are these ideas that these people are of such wildly different classes, and there's different rules, but everybody still watches everybody and talks to everybody and that just there's there's just no secrets in this in this place and there's there's open secrets you know there's there's uh, having a meal across from your husband who is actively cheating on you but no one mentions it yeah um but you'll you'll see her christmas morning yeah like that's just an insane horrible situation but when things kind of get uh this weighted down and tradition and formality and um you know, it would be rude to mention this adultery that is being yeah. committed against you. Um, that happens. And then that that just reminds me of the institution. And yeah, these staff aren't necessarily bad people. And maybe they like Diana. Maybe they maybe some of them don't like Diana. But uh, it's just the fact that everybody always will know everything in this situation, no matter what the 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 motives or the ethics of any, any individual person lead for this person to be under such scrutiny and such like just <laughs> horrible scrutiny. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, now's as good a time as any to talk about the idea of this sort of Sandra Cam as, as a prison um, and, you know, the way that the curtains are sewn shut, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, even just that sort of mild access with the access or outside world is too, is too much, you know, um, they can't let, uh, let Diana have sort of any access to it. And, and, one of my favorite shots of this movie is the title card shot when when her car is driving into the estate and um you know it's just this this overhead super wide like it seems so high and so wide that it had to have been animated but you know it wasn't animated and it's just <laughs> moving perfectly straight yeah. um and it's just 
it feels like somebody walking the plank, you know, like, and the, the, that paranoia jazz really kicks in at that point. Um, and, uh, it's just this, this really, this really compelling thing, you know? And, um, and the whole movie's just so dreary and bleak, even for England. (laughs) Yeah. It's dreary and bleak, but it's also incredibly colorful, you know, like that, that is a, a, an interesting, um, contrast to me is that, yes, I agree very bleak but also very gorgeous visual like the way that they do the bleakness is gorgeous um the yellows and and reds are just so they're so rich and um i don't know it's just this this very it is it has a very interesting look to it you know yeah i like the i think that yellow the dress of hers with the <laughs> tricorner hat yep. um that's that really pops. Um, some of the other stuff feels really washed out, and muted, which I think is amazing for a movie that's supposed to be. It, it, it's at Christmas time, which is yeah. usually a pretty bright, colorful, you know, between the decorations and the presents and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, just the things. Usually, lavish things are often just so bright and extravagant. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think you're. I think you're right that there are pieces of it, but I, there it does just feel very bleak to its color palette with a lot with a few kind of important exceptions. Like I think it's important that that yellow dress that ends up on the scarecrow is very vibrant, and lively yeah. because it it represents that element of her that maybe was dead and has resurrected with some independence and um, you know, wanting to be a motherhood, but wanting to be a mother in her own terms, but. Um, it's definitely a very pretty movie to look at, but it's it's pretty like Johnny Greenwood's music is pretty. <laughs> that is... I know an extremely talented person did this, but I yeah. don't want to live in this world. Yeah, fair point. Uh, so yeah, Claire Mathon is the uh, the cinematographer. And I think something that um, we definitely would have talked about in Jackie, I don't remember what we would have said, but uh, we talked about with No, is the... Um, the materials that they're using to shoot the movie like a lot the lot of this movie is shot on 16 millimeter the majority of it and my understanding is the um nighttime and low light stuff is shot on 35 millimeter purely to avoid uh over overly grainy footage with 16 millimeter in those situations and and i think that um it's i think that from my novice uh knowledge what that allows them to do is sort of use these very wide lenses. You know, I I saw her uh, talking about using eight and nine millimeter lenses, which I did not know existed. Um, they're, they're so wide and using them on 16 millimeter cameras. And, and I think th- that combination allows you to get a very wide angle shot without any distortion at the sides. You know, so when you say you look at that shot where... Um, she's walking through the room that has been torn apart. There's there's Christmas wrapping everywhere. You know, that's where the kids open their gifts, right? Um, and she goes to get those pearls. It's this extremely wide shot. And I think in something with uh, with a 35 millimeter and, a, and an equally wide lens is you'd get some distortion on the the like straight lines on the sides. And you yeah, don't get like that at all. Like a camera, not to that degree. Almost, but. yeah, exactly. That effect, yeah. Um, again, novice understanding. I've never worked with 16 millimeter sensors, so I can't say specifically. But um, I feel like that's that is what allows them to get these extremely wide shots with no distortion to them. And I think 
I think the lack of distortion is a really interesting element because um, let's look at something that... So The Killing of the Sacred Deer is the Yorgos Lanthimos movie that uses wide lenses really um, frequently and you get a lot of distortion on them. I can't remember how much distortion there was in The Favorite, which would be his movie most stylistically similar to to Spencer, right? Um, But you just get a lot of these like curvy, distorted lines and there's none of that in Spencer. And I think that... um, it's a really interesting choice because I think this movie visually it dances between extremely close to a subject and extremely far away from a subject. And it's very rare that you get a middle ground and it's pretty much only in a dinner sequence when you get, when you get a middle ground where it's like traditional shots that are again, very gorgeous, but like look like dinner shots from phantom thread or something, you know, um, which is still a very high bar. Um, but in those scenes where, say, she's walking through the halls or um, and we're following her from behind, there's no distortion, but we feel very far away from her, even though the camera is probably only like five feet away. Right. And then there are moments where the camera is extremely close to her, her face. And again, imagine being Kristen Stewart and acting with this camera so close to your face. I feel like that is something that um, we as viewers can never fully appreciate um, because the camera is so close to her face in this movie. But I think that um, that sort of exists because it's sort of um, a companion piece to the idea that she is so close to where she grew up, right? Like she's so close to the quote unquote person she used to be, but it feels so far away. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's sort of the, that close and far, um, sort of feeling is shown in the camera choices throughout the movie, whether or not they're even on purpose, you know, it's entirely possible that that is unintentional and it's just sort of me reading into the movie because realistically that's how it works, you know? Um, yeah. Cause filmmaking is so difficult that you can't think of these things while you're actually making a film. You could think about them when you're watching that movie three times in a row on a Wednesday, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and I think that that is a really interesting decision um to shoot it like that you know and i think it sort of again as you said um puts us in diana's headspace a little bit more you know yeah and there are some of those really wise shots of sandringham where the towers or spires you know the ones on the outside are so tall and Mm -hmm. that is where you would see those that fisheye effect if it was there but it looks just straight up and stately and very symmetrical and just very you know just so the way that a a royal family would would want these things and going from these big shots to right in her face, you know, half of this movie is just her face. It's it's so close, but uh, yeah, I think it's what you're saying or, you know, I feel the same way. I suppose I should say is um, that you can get lost in this gigantic system. You know, there's all these larger, you know, wheels turning that uh, in a large institution like that, that's, you know, (laughs) still a global empire you know what i mean like this is it, it's so big and it, there's so much history to it and then we get these big close-ups and we spend so much time not even just looking at her but seeing the world as we said subjectively through her eyes and not really knowing what's you know objectively real yeah. um, well and seeing the world as like as big and hopeless as she feels it is you know like she feels there's so much physical space around her but she still feels so trapped in it yeah, yeah, and a, a good one that you, you sort of mentioned uh, this theme earlier, but when she wants to sneak out and they think she's an intruder, you know, is this world that other people, they're all on guard from the press mm-hmm. or other people would um, 
idolize that life and want to sneak in and here she is trying to sneak out in the dead of night okay yeah um so i'm curious to know which of the metaphors you think the movie hits too hard like currency that sort of thing uh <laughs> no actually is there a lot of that i mean they don't i mean that's something that they specifically say like with yeah. words you know and that they spell it out pretty well um there are definitely things that they hit harder but less literally but that's sort of something where the queen says the only um the only portrait that really matters is the one for the 10 pound note or whatever i think i which is a line i love um yeah but, that i like yeah but uh it is saying specifically what they want you to think in a line <laughs> there's no subtext to it you know it's like i'm the queen i am currency you know yeah um a lot of the i think just a little bit too much of the bird metaphor for me okay um and her and the pheasants and her when she kind of runs away from that pheasant shoot with her arms out i think was a little much for me okay and i know some of these are probably a little bit picky but um yeah and the uh, i knew you'd love the 20 minutes of running and dancing that is <laughs> <laughs> near the end of this movie yeah but. Yeah, it's it's like half of this movie is the uh, Camelot sequence from Jackie, where Natalie Portman is just drinking vodka and listening to Camelot in the White House. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they gave you that again. Yes. So. Well, yeah. that's why I love the movie Emma so much, is because it's eighty percent that. Uh, <laughs> so five stars. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I so. I get what you're saying about the pheasants, and certainly when she walks in with her arms extended and all that. Yet, like. I'm on board. You know, I agree with you. Um, You know, like that's, you have to, even in this thing that is quote unquote a fable based on a true tragedy or whatever, um, you need to keep me in some capacity of reality and and she wouldn't have walked like that. You know, that's not, that's not the Diana that we have, um, that has been depicted to that point in the movie. She would either walk extremely, um, extremely like fast and with a purpose because this is the one time that she has has sort of talked herself into being able to stand up for herself right um or she would take the slow way around and like grab her children and sneak away you know like the the thing that this movie shows there's its depiction of diana it just doesn't fit with it you know um it's trying to get one more metaphor in there and again i agree so i agree with what you're saying the thing that i really like about this movie and I guess the pheasants to a degree is the idea of this type of thing continuing to happen. You know, we haven't really talked about um, the, the book about Anne Boleyn, um, who is a distant, yeah. distant relative of Diana. Um, that was the next thing on my list of, I could use about, I'll say 33% less. Okay. Like, uh, I, I, I loved him putting the book back. I'm totally okay with her Anne Boleyn, Lady Die hybrid stuff. Yep. It's not like I think the idea doesn't have anything to offer. Mm-hmm. I just think in my perfect version of this, there might be a bit less. I think I think if this movie doesn't have the shot of of Kristen Stewart as Anne Boleyn, I think you, I think your your criticism is basically gone. I think that that is my that is my read. That's my okay. guess. Uh, okay. My guess that we can never prove correct. Yes. <laughs> so we're both right. Um, but uh, but just that that idea that you know this is something that has historically happened before and will historically happen again. You know the yeah. um, and the the thing that the one moment where it really sort of locks in and you sort of realize that we've been talking a lot about 
um, the idea of people working for this institution and people like Darren, Major Gregory, um, people like Maria, one of the dressers, the they're just doing what they feel like they're supposed to do and they care about the people that they're doing it for, but they're just sort of trapped by this institution, right? And they can't necessarily see that the the institution is having a negative effects on people all throughout this this estate, right? And but specifically in this case, Diana. And I thought the thing that that was really cool in a repeat viewing is when the military is pulling up at uh, the beginning. Um, it's probably like the fourth or fifth shot of the movie. We see that that convoy of trucks um, driving over this pheasant corpse, right? And it's not yeah. running it over; they're just driving past it. And oh, they get so close, though. Sorry. They get so close. They do. And a couple of them clip it, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, um, not in a way that would make the prop explode. But the uh, and I think that that tied in with the conversation that she has with um, with Darren later, where she asks, "What do we do with the pheasants?" And he says, "Well, everybody takes a brace. Um, some of the staff eat some of them. The dogs get some of it. The rest gets thrown out, right?" And it's just sort of this idea that these pheasants are kind of. Um, bred for that activity and so many of them are going to be are going to die and be forgotten about and just excuse me lost to history like diana says you know the the further you get away from from her life the less um the fewer words are going to be used to describe her right and um and i thought that was an interesting thing to to show with the pheasants is that this is just going to keep happening they're going to there's going to be a new a new pheasant carcass in the road that they drive past next Christmas, you know, and, or next time they have some sort of excursion here. And I thought that sort of, um, that really drives home a lot of what it's saying about the, uh, um, the circularity, the circular destruction of the institution that they're driving into basically is just, we're just going over this carcass. We're going to make more of them. And we know that it's wasteful and we know that it's a problem. And, uh, I don't know. I just thought that was that was something that was a bit more a more subtle version of that scarecrow thing that we don't really like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought that was that was interesting. You know? Yeah. And then and one more thing, just about her and the the military. I mean, she heard kind of two big things that I think charity wise that she was known for was changing some of the stigma around people living with AIDS mm-hmm. and not treating them like lepers, essentially, mm-hmm. and landmines. And just as two examples of, you know, the things we've been talking about of just a stigma of something, you know, of just that's not how things are done. So we would not change people's opinions on, you know, any kind of stigma mm-hmm. and just the military in, in general. Right. And mm-hmm. um, landmines as being something that aren't seen, you know, it's just this hidden danger that is just <laughs> lurking and, um, you know, not really sort of out of sight out of mind until it's it's too much so yeah. uh that just lines up with some of those themes you you were talking about and i thought that was a kind of an overlap with her life that i thought was sort of meaningful about a lot of the themes we've been discussing yeah for sure and um you know we've talked a little bit about the fact that she was the most photographed human alive um the uh gregory talks about how the press's lenses are getting longer and capture more things you know she talks about how she's um feels like she's under a microscope or whatever um something that a line that i really liked is when darren and her are talking about the 
um, the pheasants. And he says something along the lines of the pheasants are bred to be shot. If it wasn't for the gun, they wouldn't be there. And I think that is something that is, um, that's a really, you know, in a movie that I think we do agree kind of hits its, um, a metaphor is pretty hard. Um, that's something that I think it really adds, asks for the idea that, um, the idea that did, did the media environment create somebody, a situation where Diana is going through this or did the Royal family create, um, a need for a media or quote unquote need for a media environment (laughs) that that gives, um, Diana this, this life experience. And, and I think that's something that's really interesting, a really interesting line and something that, um, you know, again, has no answer, but, uh, and it's very interesting to hear Darren saying it. And he, you know, he, he is saying, also the truth about the pheasants you know but it's also an interesting uh interesting subtext in in movie language too yeah and uh, the distinction i think the media is like not media as journalism but as pure like the the trashiest british tabloid culture Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah exactly um i do you have any thoughts on the scarecrows in the movie you know like (laughs) just the idea of her taking a jacket off of the scarecrow and um, putting a dress on a scarecrow at the end because I, I don't really have I don't have an answer to the question I'm just curious because we've talked about pheasants and scarecrows are meant to keep away the pheasants <laughs> you know like I, I think we just have to talk about scarecrows in some capacity yeah I, I just think of that as something that is a simple thing from her childhood and I think that there's such an importance placed on clothing throughout this movie mm-hmm. um you know her the, the tag saying pow i thought was a nice touch for <laughs> princess of wales and yeah. all the other kind of military stuff we've talked about yeah um but it seems like something that you know just saying it was her dad's jacket too it's something that clearly connects her back to um her childhood and you know seemingly a happier least simpler time in her life um we see her just going to get the jacket uh, is something that it just seems like the quickest way that we see her as separate from other people, like the, what what she's expected to be, I, I suppose, um, you know, walking through the field, still late, doing this kind of very physical thing for just some curiosity and to, to bring her back to her, her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think by leaving it on, uh, yeah, because I, I think there's a, f- a few ways to read it. I I always think of the Wizard of Oz when I see a scarecrow too, and I don't think it's insane that being one of the most famous films of all time that uh, it can be mine for some meaning as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, sort of the just the, the idea that there's no place like home. You know, this was something that was mm-hmm. very much about her home, um, and then for her to leave the clothing on it. Yeah, I, I don't know if you if you choose to read that as she's leaving this part behind. You know, mm-hmm. if if that scarecrow represents her and she's um, accepting her who she was and still is sort of mending those two things that she's grown up and had this much different experience than she thought she might have, but she is still asserting herself by the end. You know, she chooses to be the mom she wants to be instead of the mom that seemingly everybody expects her to be and Mm -hmm. takes her kids out to do the things she wants her kids to do and experience and kind of have a more um carefree fun life than shooting birds and this you know stuffy constantly cold estate (laughs) 
building. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't have heat in 1847, so we got to use blankets. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if that's if, if she's leaving, if, if her leaving that yellow one is her leaving something behind or sort of a unification of who she is and who she was and just her, you know, that, that scarecrow that represents her childhood. Um, again, sort of unifying with this life that she's accepted and that she has found a way to stick true to her values in this very, very unique situation. Because I think there's also a way to look at the end of this movie as a bit of a fantasy where she leaves Prince Charles in 1991. Mm -hmm. You know, just because we're talking about this being a bit of a fantasy and a bit subjective. um, Because they stay together to like 96, at least. Yeah, I think they separate soon after this, but are technically married until 96. Yeah, and so I didn't know if we wanted to look at this as you know a slightly uh tarantino revisionist history where the thing that we would have rather happened happened where Mm -hmm. she gets away from this relationship that she's not happy in and you know if the dominoes fall that way maybe she doesn't die when when she dies right so um yeah i think that there is different ways to look at it so i didn't try to nail one down but i you know i i like you, I think it. We like it the best when it's left with some big ambiguity and you know something to just think about for a while and think of the different ways. Yeah, well, and and talking about the very ending, like walking out of the movie first time I saw it, like my thought was definitely, oh, at some point this just reverts back to the, you know, it, it still fits in her real story. You know, the ending of the movie, she just sort of is gone for a couple days and then gets drawn back into it. You know, um, there, I don't think the movie, I feel like the movie knows that suggesting like very obviously suggesting that she's gone and she's going to live a happy life and everything's going to be okay. And she's not going to die tragically six years from now. I think the movie knows that that is a bridge too far, you know, um, and is smart enough to not do that. But, uh, I think it sort of does posit the idea that, um, is escaping at this point already too late anyway, you know, like, um, because she does the, the split, like this movie, the, the nugget of this movie is Stephen Knight learning that, um, this is about when Diana decided to leave Charles, you know, um, or start the proceedings of leaving Charles, even though they were still technically married for another five years. Um, and I think, I think the idea of this movie is maybe that, she's already too famous to ever really get away um, no matter what. And I think that, I think that's why we don't see her visibly happy in the last shot. She's just sort of looking off into the distance, you know, she's got the quote unquote perfect Christmas um, where they're eating with their hands and not following the rules or whatever, whatever they say. in in um, that scene that is very good and very obviously improvised, but like good improv. (laughs) Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't, she doesn't look happy. She looks like she still knows the reality of it. And I think that's why I sort of felt like it still fits in with um, the true facts of the rest of her life, you know? Um, the But to go back to the Scarecrow, and I guess this sort of ties into it, I guess the, the thing that I can see is that, um, or sorry, the only read I could have for it was, you know, we see Diana, it's pretty heavily implied that, Um, if she doesn't see herself as a pheasant, she wishes she were a pheasant or something like just one of many, as opposed to one of one, you know? Yeah. And the, the purpose of a scarecrow is to keep 
birds away from crops from what they think they want or from what they want you know because they're birds they don't have the capacity to to think what they want they just they just want it and um and i think this movie pretty strongly or not necessarily strongly but i think the idea of the scarecrow is maybe that um royalty was something she desired but she definitely in the way that the movie positions her now feels trapped by it and i think that um watching her walk in her wedding dress um the during at some point in the dance montage i believe she's mm-hmm. not dancing in the wedding dress because the wedding dress is way too long to dance in but um you know we see a close-up of her face and she's just sort of like she's happy but she's you can really see um some trepidation on her face like uh, like am i sure i really want to do this and i think that's sort of the um and i know that's pretty abstract and pointing pointing to a face journey and saying this is what i think she's thinking in this point you know but i do think that that was the idea is that um as she's getting married as she's marrying into the family this movie posits the idea that um she's smart enough to know that like am i ready for what what's coming you know and i wonder if the idea is that um she sort of used the the scarecrow as a warning she wishes she heeded you know to stay away oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think that maybe leaving the dress on the scarecrow, the idea is to, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this repeating um, specifically with uh, Anne Boleyn and the, the pheasants just getting driven past the dead pheasants. And I think that maybe um, the hope of this movie is to stop it from happening again, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's as hopeful as it can really get, you know? And I I also think it's interesting that her son sees a scarecrow on the royal grounds, which can't possibly be something that they would have on the royal grounds, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know if it's that same son, but one of her sons very publicly kind of left the family recently. And um, I'm chalking that up as 100% unintentional by the filmmakers. I, <laughs> I truly don't think it was intentional. Um, yeah. But it is a very interesting coincidence, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the read I had on Scarecrows. That's as good as I've got. Yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. Well, it's accepted by the one person who will ever hear it. So that's (laughs) all that matters to me. Uh, thanks for listening to the McGuffman and uh, check back next time.